my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus Christ. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. Somebody's really excited about it over here in this section. Awesome day. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now uh, from an off-site campus or maybe on the internet or uh, listening to a podcast. Maybe you're working out somewhere. I uh, hope you're not driving while you're listening. I tend to make people go to sleep. And, but uh, <laughs> we're, we're glad that you're along uh, too. Uh, exciting time. It really is. It's spring. Uh, everything is new in the spring. Uh, it overcomes the uh, pollen effect. Uh, which is the negative part of spring. And then you've got Easter, excited about the season. And I'm excited about this new series that we're doing right now called Proclaimed. Now, um, honesty time, okay? Some of you would honestly, if if you were going to be honest, you would say this. You would say, I'm glad you're excited about a series on evangelism. It just doesn't turn my tap. I love you. I love the church. I love Jesus. But this whole evangelism concept freaks me out. It's not really my gift. And, uh, you know, I'm just, just nervous about the whole thing. If that's you, don't raise your hand, but just kind of look at me and go, you pegged that one right. Okay, yeah. You know, you're not alone. Did you know that you're not alone? In fact, a um, company called the Barna Team, Barna Group Surveys, um, surveyed Christians on various issues and... I found one this week that they said this. They said, what do you think your spiritual gift is? They surveyed X number of Christians. What is the gift of the Spirit that God has given given you? And 9%, which was the highest, said it was the gift of teaching. That's interesting. Gift of teaching. You know what I say? You know, we, we uh, plant churches, and we've planted 165 churches, I think, in the last nine years. And... Uh, um, I'll have somebody that will come and they'll say, I want to plant a church. And I say, one of the, one of the more important things is that, that you need to have the gift of teaching if you're going to be the lead pastor. And they always say, well, I have the gift of teaching. And I say, well, here's how you check that out. Does anybody have the gift of listening to you? Okay. <clears throat> it's just kind of a, one of those deals. They kind of go together. 8% said they had the gift of service. 7% faith. 4% the gift of encouragement. 4% healing, 4% knowledge, 3% gift of tongues, uh, 2% leadership. And the lowest one on the whole deal at 1% was evangelism. In fact, it's gone down from 4% to 1% over the last 10 years of doing these surveys. Less people say that they have the gift of evangelism. And you, you know, you say, well, some of you are adding that up and you're saying, that doesn't add up to 100%. You're right, because 21% of the gifts that people identified are not in the Bible. A certain number of people said they have the gift of the sense of humor. <laughs> That's funny, but it's not a spiritual gift, okay? You know, the gift of, one guy said he had the gift of a house. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Um, you know, just all, all kinds of fun things. But the deal is, it's easy to tune out a message or a series of messages dealing with evangelism and sharing our faith because we don't think it applies to us. I know where you're at. I understand that. 
Uh, Tim Keller calls it gift cop-out, which basically says, you know, if, if it doesn't come natural or if we don't like it, then we assume it's not our gift, which means that we don't have to do it. But see, that's not true. The truth is, gift or not, evangelism is something that we're all called to do, something that um, we're commanded uh, to do. And, and some of us just have to work harder at it than others. That's just kind of, kind of the way it is. And it's okay. And what I want to do during this series is kind of demystify it just a little bit, kind of hopefully make it where that we can put our teeth into it. And it's Easter. I mean, we live in the South. Uh, evangelism, th- this is the easiest method of evangelism, is just simply inviting somebody to the Easter services that are coming up. Uh, you know, I was, I was inviting somebody this past week and you know, they were saying, well, you know, I'd love to come, but I work and da-da-da. And I said, you know what? If you, like, come any time on Sunday, we probably have a service. So, you know, just show up and, and we'll be there. But you know what? Another survey said that uh, one-third of all evangelical Christians said that they have no plans to invite anybody for Easter. I thought, why is that? I mean, what, this ought to be the most natural time of celebration of the resurrection in the South, everybody goes to church Easter. You know, it's easy. And uh, probably a couple of reasons. Sometimes uh, we, we don't realize what's at stake. We don't realize what's at stake. In fact, in, in uh, one of the surveys, it said that uh, sometimes Christians' personal beliefs about Jesus have not yet translated into a sense of urgency for having spiritual conversations with their acquaintances. It's not a sense of urgency. Why not? What is the urgency? Well, the urgency is eternity. Eternity is at stake here forever with God. And so sometimes that's the case. Other times it's, it's because of bad experiences or, you know, the hassle of the, of the whole thing. Or, you know, and very seldom, to be honest with you, do you have, you know, one of those neat, clean evangelism experiences like... For instance, you know, you hear about the guy that gets on an airplane and he goes from Charleston to, let's say, the West Coast. Let's say you're going to the West Coast. Now, how do you know if you're going from Charleston to the West Coast, you're going through Atlanta or Charlotte? How do you know that? I mean, when the rapture comes, we're going to be routed through one of those two cities. (laughs) We won't get there when everybody else does because our planes are never on time, you know. But we'll get there. We'll be there eventually, you know. Don't give up on us. But, you know, you get on a plane and, and uh, you have this vision of God just giving you a little prompting that the person next to you needs to, you know, something, a, a spiritual conversation or meaningful conversation, and you open up a conversation in between here and wherever you're going. They pray the sinner's prayer and come to Jesus and get filled with the Holy Spirit and healed three times. You know, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Usually it's, you know, you share your faith with somebody and, you know, you, you you get your courage up and you put it out there and they go, oh, that's great for you. You know, awesome, wonderful, and nothing, you know. Or you might get some pushback like, hey, you know, religion and politics. We don't talk about that around here. It's okay. but Or it could even put some distance between you and uh, a loved one. Maybe that's been your experience before in the past. Because evangelism is messy. It's not clean and neat and... But it's great and the payoff is huge. Well, here's the good news. Acts chapter 18 is written for people like us. 
I mean, it's, it's the story of Paul, who is the greatest evangelist that ever lived, arguably. And here's what I love about the Bible is that it doesn't gloss over the characters, you know. I mean, they're there in all their flaws. And that's good because I'm flawed. How many of you are flawed? Okay. All right, about seven in this section here. It's great to hang around with perfect people. It really is. Um, yeah, I'm flawed. Uh, you know, I struggle with same stuff everybody else does. And so did they. Paul, this great evangelist, hits a wall in Acts 18. He hits a wall. He gets discouraged. In fact, he wants to quit. Almost quits. That's good news for me because I get discouraged every once in a while. You get discouraged every once in a while? It's not the end of the world. Just work through it and we'll talk about that a little bit today. But what I want to do is I want to take a look at, in Acts chapter 18, um, messy evangelism. And what can we learn from it? Here's what I want to do. Here's the drill. We're going to do what we've done the last couple of weeks is I'm going to read you a pretty extensive passage from Acts 18. I'll comment on a little bit of it and then at the end... Uh, we'll pull three principles that I think that we'll all be able to rally around. Sound good? That's planned. So let's go to work. We've got a lot to do in the next 25 to 30 minutes. All right. Uh, Acts, 1, or Acts 18 and verse 1 says, Then Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. What do we know about Corinth? Paul was in Athens. We talked about that last week. What do we know about Corinth? We know that Corinth is the last major stop on Paul's missionary journeys. hit in several cities. This is the last one. He's probably tired. He may be a little frustrated because he's had some challenges along the way, a little testy. Um, discouragement might be setting in to some degree because he started off with his great Macedonian call. How do you know anytime you start anything new, you're excited about it? You know, wow, it's going to be great, best job in the world, you know, or this is a new idea or whatever. And then you get into it, it gets messy, it gets hard, and it's rough. And, you know, that's how life works. Well, he had this Macedonian call, a vision come to Macedonia, great things are going to be happening. And so he goes, and the first city he goes to, Philippi, it starts well, and then he gets arrested, and he gets beat up really, really bad to where they thought he was dead. And then he gets up, and he goes to the next city, same thing. They're going to beat him up there after a little while. And he gets out of Dodge, city after city, same thing goes on. Finally, he gets to Athens, and at Athens, basically, they make fun of him. Here's this country hit coming in to the city of intellects, and he's talking about this unknown God. And he has a few converts, but they laugh at him. They laugh at him. So here he is. He's, he's, at, he's at Corinth. Corinth is about 50 miles west of Athens. It's got about 750,000 people. Uh, 200,000 of them are what, what are called free men, 500,000 slaves, uh, very diverse popula- population. So it's not as, you know, kind of snobby as is Athens. But Corinth is an interesting city because it's known for its excesses, its debauchery, its immorality. That's what it's known as. In fact, in the time, the label Corinthian kind of superseded an area. It's kind of like the label Yankee today. Um, It's a term you can call somebody. And some of you are laughing, some of you aren't, because most of you are Yankees transplanted. Leave your northern allegiances. <laughs> Cheer for the Gamecocks or the Tigers or whatever, you know. But anyway, if you called somebody a Corinthian, it didn't necessarily have to be from Corinth. You're just saying about them that they're immoral, that, that they're a partier, you know, that they are, 
you know, Mr. Playboy or whatever. That was the label because that's what the city was known for. That's what it was. In the middle of the city, there's this temple to Aphrodite who kind of has become the sex goddess. And that there were uh, a thousand uh, female priests that were actually temple prostitutes. And that's kind of what the city rallied around. So get this picture. Paul's going to the strip in Las Vegas to plant a church. That's basically what's happening in Corinth. That's what Corinth is about. That's why reading the books of First and Second Corinthians is a trip. Let me tell you, that's some fun reading. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. So there he became acquainted, going back to Scripture, with a Jew named Aquila, born uh, in Pontius, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife. That's an interesting statement. He recently arrived, came over on the cruise boat. Well, that's not actually how it happened because Priscilla and Aquila were some of the first Christians actually in Rome. And, uh, and they were excited about their faith and they began to share their faith. And they came up against opposition, but they didn't quit. But it caused an incredible stir in Rome. Uh, in fact, there became persecution in Rome over the faith of people like Priscilla and Aquila, next verse. So instead of a cruise boat, they had been expelled from Italy uh, as a result of Claudius Caesar's order to deport all Jews from Rome. And so Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers, just as he was. Each Sabbath, Paul found, uh, found Paul at the synagogue trying to convince the Jews and the Greeks alike. And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia... Paul spent his full time preaching and testifying to the Jews. So he's a tent maker. He's, he's a bivocational. He's working, you know, either during the daytime or at night, and then sharing the gospel at other times. And when uh, uh, Silas and Timothy come, they bring with them an offering. You can find out about that in Philippians chapter four or First Corinthians chapter twelve. They bring an offering with them, actually from Philippi, so that Paul can devote full time to the work of the ministry. Every once in a while, people will ask me, what do you do for a living? And I'll say, well, I'm a pastor. And uh, they'll say, well, what else do you do? <laughs> like, you can't do that full time. I mean, you say, well, I do a lot of golfing and fishing, hunting, cruising the Internet, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> Actually not. Actually not. And so Paul is able to do full, and here's what he does, is he's full time, he's sharing the good news, and he's writing books. Uh, he writes a couple of, a couple of letters, a couple of books, while he's uh, there in Corinth. Let's go on. So he's testifying to the Jews, telling them the Messiah that you are looking for is Jesus. Remember last week we went over that. When with the, the Greeks or the Romans, he didn't talk about the Messiah thing because they have no background on that. But he's talking to Jews here. He's proving that Jesus was the Messiah. They had, they had questions about that. But when the Jews opposed him and insulted him, here we go again, Paul shook the dust from his robe and said, your blood be upon your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'm out of here. You know, I'll go to the Gentiles. What's up with shaking the dust from your robe? It may have been uh, equivalent to a hand signal. Let's just put it that way. Okay, so he's just fed up, fed up. I'm done. I'm through. I'm out of here. In fact, well, I'll talk about that later. Uh, Where are we at? i got a lot to talk about later. After that, he stayed with Titius Justus, a Gentile who worshipped God and lived next door to the synagogue. This next verse is... you got to just got to 
Get it in context to get some of this stuff. Look at the next verse. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and all his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also became believers and were baptized. Here's what it's saying. Paul is ticked off to no end to the point where he can't even see the good stuff going on. Have you ever been that mad? Have you ever been that discouraged about something where there's good stuff everywhere? I mean, the leader of the synagogue gets saved. There are people all over Corinth that are getting saved, and Paul's just mad at somebody who won't listen to me. I'm going to, you know, shake the dust out of my... You ever been there? You ever been there where you can't see the good for the bad? Well, that's kind of where Paul is at this bigger point. He's probably discouraged, wants to leave, maybe quit. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. And told him, don't be afraid, man. Speak out. Don't be silent. For I am with you and no one will harm you because many people in this city belong to me. Here's what God's saying to Paul. He's saying, you know what? I know you're discouraged. I know you want to quit. Don't. I know you're thinking you're going to take another beating. Don't be afraid. I've got your back on this. And let me tell you why I've got your back. It's not because you're such a great guy. I love you and all. But let me tell you something. There are people in this city that I love. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sustain you. Listen to this carefully. I'm going to sustain you so that I can love the people in this city through you. I care about the people in this city. So I'm going to sustain you. It's not about you. It's about my love through you. And he gives them that promise. So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half teaching the Word of God. But Galileo became governor of Achaia. Some Jews rose in concerted action against Paul, brought him before the governor for judgment. They accused Paul of persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to the law. Paul, Paul's going, here we go again. How am I going to get out of this one? Well, it's an interesting solution that God has here. But just as Paul started to make his defense, Galileo turned to Paul's accusers and said, listen, you Jews, if this were a case involving some wrongdoing or serious crime, I would be obliged to listen to you. But since it's merely a question of words and names and your Jewish laws, you take care of it. I refuse to judge such matters. He drove them out of the courtroom. Plan foiled, Paul spared. But they're still mad. They're spoiling for a fight. They came for a fight. They're spoiling for a fight. In the words of the great theologians, the eagles, somebody's going to hurt someone before the night is through. Okay? <laughs> Read the next part. So the mob grabbed Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and, and had him beaten right there in the courtroom. It's, it's like you know, some of you have been to bars at the wrong time, wrong time, wrong place. People are upset. You had nothing to do with it, and they whooped you. That's exactly what happened right here. Sosthenes is one of their leaders. He's there wanting Paul to be whipped. And since they've got to whoop somebody, let's grab him. And boom, there, there it is. And Galileo, it says, <laughs> he paid no attention. He was clueless. So that's the chapter. What can we learn? What can we learn about evangelism, especially messy evangelism from the story of Paul in Corinth? Let me give you three things. Number one, never forget, always remember, that God is in control of messy circumstances. God is in control of messy Circumstance. You may be in incredibly messy circumstances right now. God is in control of them. He's in control of them for His purposes. 
for His good. Um, you can expect some messy circumstances. When you choose to follow God and go into ministry of some kind, you know, we're all in full-time ministry, okay? Understand that. You are in full-time ministry. Uh, some people are vocational. They make their living from it. But when you become a follower of Christ, you become missional. You're, you're in ministry. And when you choose to do that, follow Christ, it's going to be messy sometimes, messy circumstances. I think of uh, Aquila and Priscilla. I mean, it wasn't in their five-year plan to be living in Corinth. They're living in Rome. Everything's cool, great city. And suddenly they get the boot. They're gone. And they end up in a city that they, frankly, have nothing in common with. The values are totally different than them. They are a wonderful Christian couple, and they're, they're in a cesspool. They're in the midst of immorality in Corinth. Messy, messy circumstances. But you know what? They're there for a purpose. Paul's coming. God's going to use them to minister to him, to become a part of the team, and they're going to see a great harvest there because God is in control of messy circumstances. Now you, may, you may relate to that. It may have to do with the location that you're in right now. It wasn't in your five-year plan to be in Columbia or Greenville or you know, Charleston or wherever you happen to be. And because something happened, maybe it was your choosing or maybe it was just out of your control, the company transferred you or whatever it happens to be, you're in a place that you never thought you would be and you don't particularly like it. And you don't relate to the people around you. Maybe it's your job. Maybe you don't feel like you got the gifts to do the job. Or maybe it's the ministry you're involved in. Maybe you're doing a small group or you're working with kids or whatever. And it's just, you know, it's not happening like you thought it would. And, and, it's, and it's messy. Let me tell you what you can do. If that's you, you got two choices. Here it is. Number one, you can complain about it. That's a choice you've got. Make you miserable. Make you miserable to be around. But you can do it. That is your choice. You say, well, I don't like it here. It's sure not home. Boy, the people aren't friendly. I, I just, you know, I just don't, man, the people here at work, they don't get me. I just don't get any support. I don't get any support. That kind of, you ever heard that kind of stuff? Just, just complain, 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 complain. That's an option. That's what you can do. Or, number two, you can assume, hey, this isn't a surprise to God. God is in control of messy circumstances and He has a plan. And so if you do that, then you need to ask two questions. Here they are. Number one, God, what do you want me to do? God, what do you want me to do? You have a plan. You have a plan for me right here, right now. Now, God may move you on at some point. But you know what? If you're complaining and whining about it, you need to read the Old Testament. He may keep you there for 40 more years. That's not the way to get a new position. Okay? So you say, all right, God, I'm here. What do you want me to do? Number two, who do you want me to do it with? Who do you want me to do it with? Because God always wants you to do ministry in teams. And He's got... He's already planted people around you. Paul is in messy circumstances in Corinth. Priscilla and Aquila never thought they'd be there. This wasn't on the plan but God had them there together. They didn't even know each other. Looked around. They may not have had a lot in common. Okay, Seems like they did. They were both tent makers. But you look around and you say, okay, God, who are you? Who are you? And you know what? It's easy to overlook the people that God may be really putting in our path. We, we may kind of have this vision of the type of people 
And, and usually that's pretty snobby, to be honest with you. And God brings people into your path and says, okay, this is who I want you to work with. And uh, let me challenge you with this too. I, even in the church, you might have a hard time, you know, getting in a small group or whatever. Or maybe you've been in small groups that didn't really work for you. That's okay. Form your own. Form your own. Look around. And if there are two or three people, three is ideal, three or more, um, just kind of get together and go to, you know, a coffee shop or go to one of your homes and sit down and go, let's tell our story. And so you tell your story to one another. You say, you know what? What are you passionate about? What do you, why do you think God's drawing us together? I don't think this is an accident. What do you think God's... What could we do to make a difference in the kingdom of God? That's different than what chapter of the Bible should we study? Maybe you'll be doing that. But the higher purpose and the higher calling is to, is to go, God, what do you want me to do? And who do you want me to do it with? And you guys figure out what, what difference are you going to make in the community where you live? How are you going to serve the church? How are you going to serve the community? And how are you going to serve the world? And you may very well find in a place that you never dreamed that the circumstances would be good, that God uses you in a greater way that you, that, than you ever thought. And it, it brings the whole quality of life up because when you're making a difference, then it, then it affects everything that you do. So God is in control of messy circumstances. Number two, God will sustain you through messy relationships. This whole evangelism thing gets messy. Everywhere Paul went, some people opposed him and insulted him. Sometimes they beat him up. This time he got so fed up, shook the dust off his robe, I'm out of here. Now here's the reality. You and I don't live in a hostile place. I mean, the, the hostile, you might think, you boy, you don't live where I do. It's hostile. Hey, you compare it to where Paul was. You don't live under a hostile Roman government. You don't live with a group of people who are hostile to your faith. Okay? We don't, we don't have that. But we do have messy stuff. So if you do ministry, you're going to have to deal with draining, messy relationships at times that make you want to quit. Paul has this love-hate relationship with the Corinthians. This church is passionate. This city is passionate. And the passion, listen, when it's directed in the wrong way, it's really you know, immoral and bad. But people, when they come to Christ and they're passionate, man, they can be, do great good. But it's going to be messy. If you read the book of Corinthians, you've got Christians who are loving Jesus. they got every spiritual gift. And they come to church and they take communion and they get drunk on the communion wine. Some of them do. That's why we have non-alcoholic communion. Because I know some of you guys, you'd be there sucking the wine all day. You know I mean? And that's what they were doing. That's what they were, some of them were. You read the book. Some of, there was a guy that was openly living with his stepmother, having sex with his stepmother. And nobody's correcting that. In fact, they're like, well, you know, I mean, hey, that goes on. This is the city we live in. You know, everybody kind of does their own. And Paul just gets thoroughly ticked with him. He loves him, but he gets ticked. And uh, one of my friends, you know, the, uh, most theologians think that Paul wrote three letters to the Corinthians, not just two, and that the, the third one that's missing right now was actually tucked in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, but we don't know what happened to it. 
And uh, one of my friends says it probably was one sheet of paper that had a picture of Paul's finger on it. And said, here's what, here, you know, and, and God goes, no, 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 time out. No, no, we're not going to do that. Have you ever written something when you were upset and wished that you hadn't? And sometimes God saves you from that kind of stuff. Well, Paul had this love-hate relationship with these guys. And sometimes ministry can be like that. Remember when I first went into ministry, uh, Northern Illinois, uh, and this guy that he, he was the chief of sinners. I, I got to just, and his sin, he molested all of his daughters. He stole from people. He was a liar. He was a thief. Everybody in town knew that he was a total lowlife. That's my first convert. Okay. And, and, and so he, he got saved, and I'd like to tell you that it radically changed his personality and all of that. It didn't. I mean, this guy, I kept thinking, when is it going to take for him? When is it going to take? And, and it was, oh, it was, in fact, his son, um, it was the one that high on uh, PCP, Angel Dust one night, that broke into my house and beat me up. And so that is the kind of uh, people that they were. And so finally I thought, you know what? If I get this guy baptized, maybe that'll make a difference. And so I said, we're going to baptize you. And so we had a baptismal service. And so I'm baptizing him. And as I'm putting him under, I just had this thought. (laughs) It was a fleeting thought, but I thought, you know what? If I'll just hold him under until the bubbles stop, then he'll go right to heaven. And there will be rejoicing in heaven. He won't hurt anybody else. His family will be upset for a little while, not very long. And then maybe we could name a wing of the church after this great saint of God, you know, that went to be with the Lord. Well, that's not in my hands. I didn't do it. But ministry can be messy. For you, where is it messy? Maybe it's a, a person in, in, your, in your classroom at school that they know your stand, they know your faith, and they use every opportunity they can to pick at you about it publicly. Or maybe it's um, a family member who uses every opportunity to say things like, oh, that's what a good Christian looks like whenever you blow it. And it's just, it's just messy, irritating. Maybe it's uh, somebody that you pour into and you pour into and you pour into and they don't seem to change much. They're high maintenance. Maybe it's somebody in your small group that doesn't understand boundaries. And so they violate yours all the time. Maybe a space boundary or, or it, they're calling you at you know, all hours and you're just over it. You're tired of it. Maybe it's a person that uh, you're, you're loving on and you think it's going great and they fall back into the addiction. And it's worse now than it was before. You get discouraged about it because you can. You're just human. So how, how does God sustain you through messy relationships? Let me give you two things that I saw in this passage. Paul looks like he's ready to quit. Here's what God does. God gives him a word from the Lord. God sustains you through His Word. Now, it was a vision for Paul. Sometimes he can do that. I've had one in my entire life. Doesn't happen often. More often than not, it's through His written Word. And that's why I'm a champion of reading His written word every day. 
If you can do it every day, a little bit or a lot, just read every day because it gives God material to work with. I know there have been many times for me where I have read Scripture and one verse jumps out. I mean, it happens almost every day. One verse jumps out and it's God's Word for me and maybe it sustains me during the day in a situation that I didn't know I was going to be in. Or maybe there's a hint of, you know, disillusionment or discouragement about a relationship or whatever that's coming in. And, and here's a word from God and it goes, wow. And it sustains me. Just a little, little word from God can sustain you in times of discouragement or disillusionment or when you get your eye off the ball or whatever it happens to be. God's word. Sometimes God's Word comes through an email from somebody else. And that's why we need to be encouraging one another constantly. In this technical age, what an awesome opportunity to encourage one another. You know, our grandfather or grandmothers or great-grandfather, great-grandmother, they they live further apart. They they may have gone hours or even days without seeing someone else. They had to write a letter or, you know, whatever. And we today, we we can get on a computer and, and, and quickly we can give a... Word of encouragement. You, know, you need to be open to that, constantly encouraging one another. In fact, as a church, uh, we're going to introduce uh, a new um, uh, new piece of software that I'm so excited about. We've been working on it for over a year uh, called The City that's going to help us communicate and encourage with one another. Encourage one another. And I'm hoping that the whole level is going to go up. And then word from God. Second thing that God uses to sustain you is a team, your team. Paul had a team. Immediately, you know, he, he gets uh, uh, Silas and Timothy, and now they can't come, and so immediately he connects up with Priscilla and Aquila because God wants you to do ministry in teams. And so, and, and so that's how God sustains you. God sustains you through His Word and through a team. Here's a great verse. Here's a great verse. Ecclesiastes 4.9. Let's read this one out loud together. Two people can accomplish more than twice as much as one. They get a better return for their labor. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But people who are alone when they fall are in real trouble. And on a cold night, two under the same blanket can gain warmth from each other. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. See, a team brings encouragement. A team brings uh, uh, perspective. A team brings strength. I think that's one of the reasons that Jesus says, where any two or three of you are gathered, I'm there in the midst. Okay? There's strength there. Never do ministry alone. Never do ministry alone. Always have a team. Because that's what God will use. He'll use His Word and He'll use the team to encourage you. All right. So, ministry gets messy. Remember, God is in control of circumstances. He sustains you through messy relationships. Here's the third thing. God often uses messy and unusual solutions. Messy, things that you never would have dreamed of. See, Paul never would have guessed in a million years how God was going to deliver him from his bad day. When, when they brought him into court, looks like he's going to take a whipping again. Maybe, you know, maybe all night he, he thought about it and he's trying to write his speech. What am I going to say? What am I going to say? Maybe he even worried. Maybe there was some anxiety there. Do you ever worry about things that haven't happened yet? 
Do you? Three of us? Okay. I found this great definition of anxiety this week. It says, anxiety is nothing but repeatedly re-experiencing failure in advance. Did you get that? Anxiety is nothing but repeatedly re-experiencing failure in advance. How do you know that's a waste of time? Yeah. So how does God sustain him? <laughs> Just before he speaks, the judge dismisses his case. The crowd beats up his chief opponent and he plants a church. God's not limited in his creativity and in what he does in order to bring about solutions in messy circumstances and relationships. And that's why you ought never to give, give up on anybody. Never give up on anybody. Is there somebody you're praying for that you're thinking about giving up on? See, God assured Paul that he would protect him and sustain him because God had people in the city that had not yet come to Christ. And God had a plan. He was working behind the scenes to work it out. So Paul, it's not about you. There are going to be some unusual things that will happen because I love people. Mom, Dad, listen to me. Listen to me. You may be ready to give up on a wayward son or a wayward daughter. Here's what I know. I know that God loves them and cares about them even more than you. I don't understand that sometimes, but He does. And He is at work behind the scenes. You might not see it, but He's at work behind the scenes creating unusual circumstances to draw them to wholeness. Never give up. In fact, every morning I hope that you give your day to the Lord. And when you do, I hope that you say, God, use every opportunity today to speak through me because you never know how God's going to use you in this thing called evangelism. You never know what paths you'll cross. You never know the divine appointments. And maybe you'll never know until eternity the impact that you can make. It was a cold, snowy day. The preacher got snowed in. Couldn't make it to church, and so he called a layman. The guy he called wasn't real sharp, couldn't speak well, owned a small shoe-fixing business, but he could get to church. And the preacher called him, and he said, today you're going to have to give the message. And so... The guy with the shoe repair business went to church and there were only about 15 to 20 people that showed up. But one of them was a visitor that day. Interesting day to have visitors, isn't it? And from the perspective of the visitor, he wrote this about that church service. He said uh, that the congregational singing was horrific. He said it was so bad it could easily give you a headache. But he said that was only exceeded by the poorness of the message. He said it was perhaps the worst sermon that he'd ever heard in his life. But you know what? Somewhere in that day, in that little snow-filled village, God used a word to speak to the visitor's heart. And the visitor that day stepped across the line from being a seeker to a believer. And after that day, the shoe repairman went home. 
the congregation in future weeks con- continue their horrendous singing and the visitor continued to grow in the Lord and became what's arguably called the greatest preacher that's ever lived, Charles Spurgeon. That's the story of his salvation experience. I think that's cool because God has an incredible sense of humor, doesn't he? He's able to use anybody to do anything. And so I want you to be aware. I want you to be ready. I want you to know that evangelism is often messy. God is in control of messy circumstances. God will sustain you through messy relationships. And God often uses unusual messy solutions. Just leave it to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. God, today more than anything else, we want to be available. Lord, I pray that you would uh, create in every one of us a heightened sense of availability and of the stakes uh, that uh, are high. God, I pray that uh, each one of us would take responsibility for the little piece of the mission that you've given us. That evangelism would be on our screen. That just sharing our faith, just being an encouragement, just looking for situations where maybe you want to love somebody through us. God, now I pray that you would challenge us during a time of response. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.